Lonely Monk Productions. I don't know if y'all have seen the Speedy Ortiz Tiny Desk Concert yet, but yo! That's my joy! That's my joy! What's good, friends and family, neighbors near and far? Welcome to an all-new episode of the Yo, That's My John podcast. The podcast, website, brand, movement, way of life dedicated to the embrace and championing of your passions. I'm your host, Nate Runkle, a.k.a. the guy ripping belly flops to close out the summer pool season, a.k.a. Nate 3.0. Back at it again with yet another episode of the podcast. As always, I hope this podcast finds you all in good health and in good spirits. On today's episode, I am joined by Adam Weiner of the band Low Cut Connie. Adam and his pandemic live streams, Tough Cookies, were a major influence of mine for creating this very show, and I have been wanting to share my space for a conversation with him since the early days of the pod. So I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and it finally happened, and I am so happy to say that it exceeded everything I wanted it to be, and now you're going to get to hear it. Well, in a little bit, because first, I gotta check in with my homies. How we doing, gang? Happy Labor Day. Hope everyone had a great summer full of joy and excitement. But no matter how great of an inning this summer may have been, it is time to retire the side and give fall its turn at bat. And look, I'll be honest with y'all, fall is my John. I love the fall. You know, I'm a hoodie guy. I'm a blazer guy. And well, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes you might just catch me in a hoodie and a blazer because I get down like that. Yeah, man, I love the fall. I like the cool fall vibes. And I'll confess to being a big basic B because I love me some pumpkin spice, y'all. And actually, let me state this for the record right here. Seasonal flavors are dumb. Can we not with this? Maybe maybe I want a pumpkin spice donut in April. Maybe I don't want a time of year to dictate when I get to enjoy some apple cider. Free the seasonal flavors. Someone needs to back me up in this cause. <laughs> yeah, man. All right. But the podcast is going strong and I have a bunch of great interviews already recorded and in the bag for you and a whole bunch more scheduled for this fall. So the best way to keep track on when those will come out and what's up with the what's up with the podcast is to join the mailing list. I promise I will not spam your inbox. You'll get like one email per episode, super low key, and it helps us to know who all's out there. So sign on up for the mailing list. You can find the link in the show notes attached to this very episode in whatever podcast player you are streaming this on. Or you can jump on the website at www.yothatsmyjohn.com. And be sure to follow us on the socials at Yo That's My John on all platforms. Let's be friends. Give us a follow. You know, I've been doing this new thing each and every Friday where I share some of the new music I've been enjoying lately. So if you like some music suggestions, get on them socials. Follow us. Bet. All right. We're going to take a very brief ad break. And then my chat with Adam Weiner.
Yo, That's My John is brought to you by Liquid IV. Guys, it is festival season. And you know me, I love a festival. And the secret to enjoying a festival is to stay hydrated. Liquid IV has you covered while you prep before, power through to the headliner, and recover after the weekend. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone with three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks. Man, I love Liquid IV. It comes in a convenient packaging, and it's tasty. When you see me at the Exponential Music Festival this fall, you know that I will have Liquid IV on me. And it comes in 12 delicious, refreshing flavors to keep your hydration routine exciting. All right, strawberry used to be my favorite, but they have this new one. It's strawberry lemonade, and it is a banger. One stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. So Liquid IV partners with leading organizations for innovative solutions to help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. Okay, and you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the promo code YTMJ at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using the promo code YTMJ at liquidiv.com. Do it, and let's get our fests on. My guest today is the main driving force behind the band Low Cut Connie. Since 2010, the band has released seven albums, and their eighth, Art Dealers, is set to come out this Friday, September 8th. Their pandemic show, Tough Cookies, featuring live performances and interviews with music luminaries, received massive critical acclaim and saw my guest named as the Pandemic Person of the Year by the New Yorker magazine. Not to mention, was one of the main influences of this very podcast. Folks, it is my honor to welcome to the show, our pal Adam Weiner. Ladies and gentlemen, I am joined today by the great Adam Weiner. Adam, thank you for joining me on Yo, That's My John. My man, happy to be here to talk about all the Johns you want to talk about. <laughs> so um, I always like to open things up and tell people a little tidbit about my connection to them. And for you, um, this is a really important interview to me because you were one of the inspirations for me starting this show. Um, one of one of like three or four. But um, when you started doing Tough Cookies over the pandemic, like I was just completely inspired. Um, I had been looking for something to do um, as everyone was because, you know, everything was shut down. And uh, so like I was doing live streams and stuff like that at the time and then once I saw like you like interviewing people I was like oh my god interviews like that would be an incredible thing so I just started like interviewing like some of my musician friends and stuff like that and that's kind of how this podcast version of yo that's my john was birthed so so thank you so much for being on here man mazel tov good you're doing great you've had a lot of great guests it's been a wild ride man so (laughs) keep it up baby keep it up so um, d- tell uh, anybody listening a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey in Cherry Hill. 
um, just outside of Philly, Jersey suburbs. What else you want to know? Uh, well, so like, uh, what kind of what did, what did your folks do? What uh, what kind of music was playing around the house? Which is like a, a good oh, one I love. well, my family they love. <laughs> they're like a Broadway. Everybody's into Broadway, so it, a lot of show tunes. You know, the sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. That's a good one. Uh, listen, a Jewish family in South Jersey, uh, Barbara Streisand, Barry Manilow, all the schmaltz, all the yeah. schmaltz, which at this age now I have an appreciation for. But growing up was just not my cup of tea. Yeah. I very... At a young age, I got into, you know, old rock and roll, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, old blues. I started buying Lead Belly and Robert Johnson and Blind Lemon Jefferson and Charlie Patton, all the old blues shit from the 20s and 30s when I was 13 years old. And then I got into soul music. I got into punk rock. I got into all kinds of things and over the years i've gotten into so many kinds of music but now i have an appreciation for that schmaltz that i grew up with the show tunes and sort of the cocktail jazz and and stuff i can really appreciate now some of those artists and great songs it just wasn't what i was looking for at that age yeah, no, that totally makes sense. It totally tracks. Like, you know, I, I kind of feel the same way. Like at a certain point, you start to revisit the things you've rejected, you know, for yeah. throughout your life. And you're just like, oh, wait a minute. I do get it. And then, but the, you, know, you know, one thing I will say is my family loved Motown because, you know, both of my parents were great dancers. They loved to dance. And so a lot of the music from Motown and a lot of like, the Philly soul and stuff that my late pal Jerry Blavitt used to play on the radio, which is basically like anything you could dance to that music. My family loved as well. And I always loved and still love. And I think was very influential on my own music. Definitely. Definitely. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned show tunes because one of my uh, questions I had lined up for much later, but I'm going to jump into it now, is um, the, the, there's a very theatrical nature uh, to your music and to your No, there isn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> but have you ever entertained the thought of putting together like a, um, uh, either, you know, a, a rock opera almost or, or a musical piece? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um in fact, when I was 21 years old, I actually, I've not spoken about this actually, I wrote a show that played in an off-Broadway theater for two weeks. And then I actually wrote another show that was in the Fringe Festival um, 2002 in New York. And... There was a third play that I wrote called Lapdog. That was around 2006 that was at La Mama, which was a theater in New York City. It's still there. I was very heavily involved in theater and initially went to New York City to be an actor. 
and um, pretty quickly realized that music was going to be my medium. But I definitely think at some point I'm going to circle back around to the stage and I don't know what that's going to look like, but um, I've always thought that I would end up back there at some point. So we'll see. Oh man, it would be great. Like it's one of those things that like, uh, do, do, do any of the uh, recordings of the, the book of the pieces you put together, do any of that exist anywhere? Cause I'd love to kind of hear what that sounds like. I'm going to go with no comment on that. <laughs> okay. okay. One, yeah, maybe one day with my label, I'll, I'll repackage some of my things that I did in, in my twenties of which there was quite a bit, but I'm not ready to go back there just yet. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so, uh, going, going back to childhood, when did you, when did you start playing music? Did you started with piano? Yeah. Yeah. We had a piano in the house and my brother, older brothers, very, very good piano player. And, um, I think it, Age three or four, I saw the movie Amadeus, in which Mozart plays the piano upside down behind his head, right? And um, I figured out how to play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star behind my head on the piano. And um, I really wanted to play guitar. I think Back to the Future made a lot of kids of my age want to play guitar, but I got upset. I really loved Chuck Berry like chuck berry music still is in my bloodstream and and um there was that thing in the 80s where chuck was really in because of back to the future and stuff and i i wanted to play guitar um but my family was a little bit insistent that i take piano lessons instead and i think ultimately i tried to play piano like a guitar player, if you know what I mean. Sure. Um, I always tell people now that um, people always ask me who my like most influential piano players are. And there are many, of course, I could list all the greats. But I think somebody like Keith Richards is as influential on me as any of the piano players. I think I play piano a lot like like a lot of guitar players that that I admire. And Keith Richards is somebody who plays this very feel-oriented kind of meat and potatoes kind of riff guitar. And that's how I play piano. I'm not the virtuoso of piano that some people are. If you see like Ben Folds, he plays piano. He's a virtuoso, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, um, so many piano players that can play so john batiste is a is a virtuoso i am not a virtuoso in the way that somebody like keith richards isn't a virtuoso of the guitar like like Jimi hendrix or eddie van halen or something but i i, I play piano kind of like keith richards plays guitar it's it's all about feel and riffs and um building a song 
Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the things that um, is definitely one of um, the uh, most mesmerizing things about your live shows and, you know, it speaks to the, like that Keith Richardsness speaks to this is that like the piano as a stationary object does not hold you down at all or hold you back. You are not restrained by by the limitation of not being able to move and without using a guitar, you know, like I mean, like you you it, like the piano is almost an extension of yourself but you can move around it and and leave it if you need to and kind of command things without being tethered to the to the stage well it's a piece of furniture and uh it's a four it's 400 pound piece of furniture um and look i mean jerry lee lewis little richard elton john pioneered how to be a piano player in rock and roll on stage, you know? Yeah. So I'm certainly not the first, but in this day and age, there's just aren't that many people playing piano as the center of, of a rock and roll band. It's not the way that I do it anyway. Um, there are other very good, very good piano players, people better than me playing uh, different styles but for this style that i do um i don't know anybody else that does exactly my kind of style of music on piano no you are definitely one of a kind my friend like uh you definitely definitely have that vibe um were, were so when you started playing and stuff like that were you writing songs and stuff like that or were you um kind of just playing other you know covers and whatnot uh to begin with um, I could hear a song and see, I was trying to learn to read music and I wasn't good at it. I really couldn't, was very poor at it, but I could hear a song on the radio and I could figure it out. And then when I was around seven or eight, maybe younger, I don't know. I remember writing my first song on piano. I have a tape of it somewhere that was just a very beautiful little piano melody and then i would say maybe around nine or ten i wrote the first song i wrote with words with a vocal melody i still remember that and i have must have a tape of it somewhere and that was that felt that opened up a whole world i'm not going to sit here and tell you it was good but it made me feel something really, you could do something magical with, with melody and lyrics, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I feel like I wrote my first song before I could really play guitar. Like, uh, it was just like, uh, I know, you know, and, and like, I'll go back and revisit some of those songs and I'm like, oh, that is not the chord you want. But if you put this chord there, it's actually not a bad song, you know, and, and stuff like that. But I, I I feel like if if you have that in you, it's going to find its way out one way or the other. I mean, I think I, you know, and I taught music for years. So I and I helped younger people who were at the same that same juncture of writing their first songs. And I learned a lot by teaching. And um, I noticed that for me, I'm a music I'm really a musician more than a writer by nature, even though I would like to say 
my wish is that I would be more of a natural born writer. I think I'm more of a natural born musician. By that, I mean, I walk around all day with music in my brain. And the music finds its path. And then I try to find words. Um, occasionally, the words find the music. But um, I'm 100% music first, which is like, um, there's certain like, a like, some of my favorite songwriters that operate that way, like a Stevie Wonder, or a Paul McCartney, uh, where it's the music first, but then you realize that so many great songwriters are words and they find the music, right? Elton John, Bernie writes all the lyrics and then Elton sets the lyrics to music. I don't work that way. Um, I could experiment with that, but it's just not my nature. I'm, I'm, I'm a music first type. Yeah. Do you um do you hear um the melody line first or do you hear the uh the compos- composition underneath? It could be whatever. I yeah. was uh you get it get it from wherever you can get it. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. No, get definitely. it where the getting is good. <laughs> totally. Um so so when did you start playing out? Like uh were were you playing in like high school and stuff like that, or were you just kind of uh, a bedroom player? It's funny. I was uh, very shy, totally introverted, shy. I, you know, like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I, I had no friends. I was the kid getting made fun of, totally afraid to talk to people. And yet, then I would get on stage in the drama club and come alive and it would be the star of the show and eventually in high school i became kind of like the star of a lot of the school plays and i was writing a lot of songs but they were like secrets and it's funny because i had bands in high school i always was in a band but the bands were always cover bands I never, I was always too shy to play my own songs. It really wasn't until I was 18, 19, 20, living in New York City that I started to play my own songs. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that I would go to the sidewalk cafe in the East Village to the open mic and put my name in. And they'd call my name and I'd go up there and my teeth would be chattering. I was so nervous. My leg on the pedal of the piano would be visibly shaking. My voice would be shaking. Now, if you asked me to sing or play piano somebody else's music, which I I always had a job job playing piano in restaurants and things, I was never nervous. I never was nervous. If you asked me to deliver dialogue as an actor, I wasn't nervous. The minute I would get on stage and play my own songs, I would absolutely be a, a wreck and fall yeah. apart. Yeah. And it took me a long time 
to reconcile why that was and work on it. Now I don't even think I don't even think about it and I almost never get nervous on stage, but there was some, it felt like I was sharing a secret. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, it, 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 it kind of exposes how vulnerable um, it is to, to share something on stage. Like, you know, it's, it's, it, it comes across as, you know, being on stage comes across as almost cocky, you know, just inherently just by being up there and being like, Hey, look at me, you know? Right. But like to be up there and say, Hey, look at me and to share something, um, that you've created or an emotion that you're feeling is absolutely frightening. Like it took me a very, like, I still don't like playing, um, serious songs that I've written I just it it makes me feel um some kind of way now if it's like um just like a straight up like rock and roll or like I do like acoustic hip-hop kind of stuff if I'm doing that on stage there's there's kind of uh an inherent bravado in it so like I can just kind of you know for lack of better terms rock out with my cock out but you know like it's like it's like if I'm trying to play something about like a broken heart or you know a loss or something like that forget about it like like you said I'm a mess man yeah, I. it's funny to remember how nervous I would get because now I can't even relate. Now I can, I, I, I could get in front of 10,000 people and I don't, my heart rate doesn't even go up, you know? Yeah. Can you remember uh, when it, when it, when it clicked, like when you felt comfortable? There's definitely not one moment, but there's there was a process yeah and the process was in my uh later 20s from 25 until i was 30 were these kind of lost years for me where i was living in a whole bunch of different cities and traveling and um sleeping on couches and stuff and those years they're like my stand up comedy years basically where I played gigs in dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of cities all over the country and all over Europe. And I put myself intentionally uh, in very hostile situations. Um, I played in the diviest, shittiest bars alone. I played in working man's pubs in England uh, I played in potluck dinners and frat parties and you name it. And I was performing alone. And you basically, these were all strangers. I didn't have fans. Um, there wasn't social media, wasn't much of a thing. It's my space, but nothing else. And, um, I would basically get up in front of a room of strangers sometimes very hostile strangers and look them in the eye and try to win, win the night, you know? And sometimes I would win and sometimes I would, you know, bomb as Steve Martin says, die comedy death, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just nothing worse. It's like, I still have to do 20 more minutes of this, you know? Um, People screaming horrible things at me. Get the fuck off the stage. 
terrible, very volatile situations. And I just went through that process. I did it for a bunch of years. It didn't build my career at all. I didn't get a record label manager, fan base, nothing. But what I got was better than all that, which was at the end of that, I was ready. Yeah. I was ready. I could get on stage. Because, uh, you know, I started Low Cut Connie at 30, 30, 31. And then I was ready to take people on. Yeah. I knew I knew who I was. I knew what I could do. I knew what my skills were. I had honed it. And the fear was gone. You know? Yeah. The um um and and like it's it's you know n- not uh, uh surprising but like I feel like that 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 power and that growth and that confidence um still continues on because like I feel like going album by album you can just hear you becoming more powerful and stronger um as as a front person um it, well thank you I I will say that um. <laughs> You know, Low Cut Connie has been an evolution. It's constantly changing and growing, and uh, I change, and the band changes with it. And um, I produce my own albums now, the last couple, and the new one that's coming out. Um, So I learned how to produce, which I didn't know how to do. Um, Some people are natural-born singers, like an Edda James or something, Aretha Franklin. Um, I was a good singer, but I lacked confidence and I needed to work at it. I needed to get my 10 or 20,000 hours of singing. And before I, I think my problem actually was that I didn't think I was a singer. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean. Yeah. And singers, we're all head cases, you know? And so we go through these, do people want to hear me things? And it took me a very long time to, because I have such respect for musicians and great great vocalists, because I'm such a music collector and lover. And... I didn't put myself in the category with the people that I really admire their singing. And I thought of myself as somebody that might, maybe I'll write these songs and maybe somebody else will sing them at some point. Right. Yeah. Like my new song off of my upcoming album, are you going to run that I put out over the summer? I absolutely thought that, somebody else would sing that song. I, I wanted Ronnie Spector to sing the song before she died. Um, I thought it would be a woman. And then like so many times before, then I had to decide, well, I need to do it and I need to give it, I need to do it. Well, it's funny. Cause I think of myself as like a casting director. Yeah. And when I put the band together, it's like this person's going to do this and this person is going to do this and you cast the roles. 
And a lot of times I wouldn't want to cast myself in the lead, which is some sort of psychological quirk. But over the years, I've come to realize maybe I'm not bad and maybe people like it and I need to just lean in, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned um, taking over production and stuff like that. I think that's part of it, too, because like somewhere around like Dirty Pictures, I feel like you found out how perfect your your vocals can sound um and and you found like what they need to sound like and even that is still kind of evolving like i think the the vocal tracks of the you know that i've heard on the four songs um so far that you've released off of um art dealers like you're 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 almost at a point where i i've always said that like you're you're one of those bands that like you know the album almost doesn't do you justice because hearing you perform them live is just so powerful and, and, and evocative and i feel like you're almost at a point where you are capturing that kind of power in a recording um and and it's just been really phenomenal to kind of watch that growth thank you i Appreciate that. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, um, it's funny. I, it's all psychology. And again, remember I taught music and I used to teach kids and like, when you teach kids who are age eight, nine, 10, a lot of those kids are just absolutely full of confidence and bravado and they just go for it. You see all these kids on TikTok and stuff playing drums or and they just like go for it, you know. But then you teach kids who are 11, 12, 13, 14, and it's the saddest thing. You see them lose their confidence. You see them become self-conscious mm -hmm. and they get shy. They get they try on all different sounds and personalities and poses and suddenly they really care about what they look and sound like they get uncomfortable and many people never get their swag back after that you know yeah and so for me if i'm being honest i always had confidence as a performer on stage but to make records and as a recording artist as a singer as a producer as a piano player as all the things it took me some t a minute you know it took me a little yeah. bit of time and low cut connie has been this gift to me in my life because you have to understand it was unexpected it was a, an unplanned pregnancy it was a little side project with my buddies that became the main thing and changed my life. It's the fans of low cut Connie that changed my life because at that point in my life, in my early thirties, I had no expectation that I would ever write a song or put any music out that would ever resonate with, with people. At that point, it had become a thing for myself and for my friends. And when I started to do these shows with Low Cut Connie and people would come and know all the words to Rio or every word of Big Thighs New Jersey off the first album and then every word of Boozophilia off the second album 
and people would sing the words to me and get tattoos of the words. And I have a song on our first album called Full of Joy that people got married to, you know, um, that completely turned me around. And I've tried to just live up to it, if you know what I mean, and uh, try to get better at my job as I go. Well, it's definitely working. Um, and, uh, and you, you, like I said, you, you uh, watching kind of the growth, especially like the past few years, like, I don't know if, if I'm, uh, projecting any of this, but I feel like doing, uh, tough cookies over the pandemic kind of was like your final boss battle. Like it was like, the, like you unlocked an achievement in there and, um, you, like there are traits that like, you know, I had seen glimpses of before, but like at that moment, it was just like, it was like an evolution almost. True, true. Uh, thanks. I, I, um, you know, you talk, we were talking about Steve Martin a minute ago. He's been so inspiring to me. Is this amazing book called Born Standing Up? It's great. And, uh, it really resonated with me because he didn't have any success till in his, well into his thirties. And he became an icon, but he failed initially. He he was trying to be a he tried magic, he tried um folk music, he tried impressions, he tried writing, he tried all these different things. And it wasn't until he synthesized them all into one act. Prop comedy with folk music with magic, with stand-up, with impressions, with all of it, became his, his, his a variety act in one guy. And I feel like Tough Cookies for me was taking all these different things that I had done and that I could do and put it in one place. And I guess people hadn't seen me um, do all these things. Yeah. Um, I had never, I never talked much on stage with the band because the pace of the show is really fast and furious. Uh, There was never a lot of time to talk. And then all of a sudden I was doing these live stream shows where I had to fill 60 minutes of live, you know, no dead air. And so you can only play songs so much. You got to keep the ball in the air. You got to keep people engaged And so this ability to host and keep the ball rolling and keep people engaged and be funny at times and be serious at times and do interviews and basically create this little variety show um, to keep people entertained, it all felt very natural. I just did everything, just followed my gut and did everything as as I felt it. We started in March. By the time we hit June, I said, I'm going to start doing interviews now. And then I was doing interviews with Rock and Roll Hall of Fame people and iconic uh, musicians. Then it turned into writers and politicians and luminaries. And it was just it just was unbelievable. And then uh, it just grew and grew and grew. And so I want to tell you something. 
because we're talking about this and maybe some people will be watching this. I'm very excited to say I haven't announced anything yet, but next year, look out, just look out because I have this new project called the Connie Club that is basically Tough Cookies Mach 2. I'm going to have a radio show here in Philadelphia, and I'm going to be doing all these live variety show tapings, interviews, music, comedy, um, DJ, everything. And it's going to be, it's going to be fucking great. And that's incredible. It's 2024. It's coming. I love it. You know, that was one of the things I was curious about um, because like it like like you were saying, it allowed you to use every tool in your toolbox, you know, some that nobody had seen you kind of use before. Was there was there any feelers or any interest from like uh, any uh, streamers or studios to try to get you to host a show? Yeah, there was. I don't want to say too much, but it's. There was a lot of conversations that were happening, but I think the bad as the, there was a lot of good from COVID and, and the pandemic, but bad is that there was this time where we started to do things very differently and reevaluate how we did everything. And then as soon as we could, everybody went back to the way we did it before. Yeah. So there were all these conversations about leveling up this live stream series and partnering with platforms and really creating a new type of variety show. And then everybody lost their nerve the minute that live in-person entertainment came back. And so now that the dust has settled for a couple years, now we can actually have more legit conversations but just like the way that Ticketmaster became stronger live nation became stronger we went back to the old ways again out of out of exhaustion basically yeah so i'm hoping that next year i can restart the engine and reintroduce this variety show in a totally different format uh, with live audiences. Um, and I, I hope people, I hope people dig it. It's going to be a, a really cool project next year. That's awesome. I'm really excited for it. Yeah. Like I, I think one of the most beautiful things about, um, you know, tough cookies kind of making, you know, something good out of something bad is that like, because you were in your home speaking to people in their homes, it gave a connection that like, I don't know that we would have ever been able to have um, with the, you know, like, like this is the first time we've ever spoke, but I feel like I'm talking to an old friend because of how much time I spent with you yeah. speaking to me in my living room, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, um, so like it, the, the, the fact that it, it, it still lives and kind of that spirit, you know, like you, you called it a, the, the Mark two, like the, the fact that, that there, you know, that that's still going to exist in some form, um, really warms my heart because like I, you did, you did something really beautiful, not just musically and creatively um but um i kind of feel like almost like uh as a gift to humanity almost for a certain group of people thank you and i gotta i i'd be remiss if i didn't give a shout out 
to um, Will Donnelly, my guitar player, Will, because he was in there with me the whole time and was completely integral to those shows. I mean, he walked the tightrope with me. And I also need to shout out, it was a four-person um, bubble. I got to shout out to George Murphy, who became the producer of the show, who would sit in the room and do all the graphics and keep the stream alive and pivot left, right with me as I threw curveballs. Um, and also Camera Girl, who's the silent hero of Tough Cookies, <laughs> who yeah. was the was the the cinema cinematographer that made it look cooler than just a cell phone in a in a in a bedroom if you know what i mean yeah absolutely um and like you said you started doing interviews and i'm going to tell you right now i'm going to be 100 percent honest with you um i have a full envy and jealousy in my heart that you got to interview Mike Nesmith before he passed away because that is one of my guys. I have been a uh, Nes fan forever. Yeah. um, What a beautiful opportunity you had. That was special. Um, I'm sad to say we got one of the last interviews with him. Um, And it's funny. Well, it's not funny because I would joke on the show about how he was smoking weed during the interview but then after he passed away it became all this these stories came out about how he'd really been suffering with cancer and was using marijuana to help him with his pain um and so i understand now when he gave me 45 minutes of his time why he was smoking weed the whole time we were talking it was a beautiful thing and a i what a brilliant guy. What yeah. a brilliant guy. I mean, musically talented, funny, great writer, innovator, but above all, just extremely intelligent. Yeah. And so underrated. Like yeah. his his contributions to to the, you know, to culture and stuff like that is so understated. Um, but yeah, I was completely jealous when that happened. <laughs> like, uh, that was, that was the dream. I, uh, I've been, I've been on a, um, uh, a tear. One of the main things about this podcast is, uh, I, I, I won't rest until, um, he or the monkeys are inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame. And I know I'm, I'm fighting a lost cause, but, um, I, I, if, if I ever get, you know, if anybody ever asks my opinion, I will second that motion. Because, yeah, I mean, um, so many great songs, but also that TV show was just a fucking masterpiece. It was so great. And it holds up. I told him that in the interview. I said, you have to understand that you have many generations of fans, but I'm of the generation that became massive Monkees fans because of Nickelodeon and the monkeys reruns that became really popular in the 80s yeah with this big kind of monkeys revival and it was absolutely fresh and zany uh and sat went toe to toe with things like peewee's playhouse you know like these kind of zany crazy shows up from the 80s 
the monkeys was was a precursor to all that and i love the beatles of course but what the monkeys did with their tv show they were better on camera you know as a group than the beatles actually was in my opinion I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah, I'm a I'm a uh, unrepentant uh, uh, monkeys fan. Like I will, uh, <laughs> I will wear that flag um, clear as day. So many great songs, and even some of those last couple albums they did that were so beautiful. Some of the songs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, you got Art Dealers uh, coming out uh, September 8th. And like I said, the four songs that, that you've released so far are absolutely um, stellar. Uh, you know, I, I was talking to uh, your friend Eric Bazilian uh, uh, a few episodes ago on the show, and we were both gushing, you know, essentially saying like, you, you're like one one of these songs away from being a household name i i feel um and and to to me like um king of the jews is such a powerful fucking song and the visualizer you put out to go along with it is absolutely stunning like it it's just Thank it, you. and 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 i'm not gonna lie like uh i i can say this from one guy to another um you look beautiful in that <laughs> like <laughs> you look oh really you said that to all the girls <laughs> um we shot it right here in my house i just put on the to fill in and and um Again, it all comes down to confidence because I never, ever would have done something so simple. Um, it's kind of like when Sinead O'Connor passed away, rewatching her performance in the video for Nothing Compares to You, which was iconic when I was a kid. So powerful, just a solo performer looking into a camera, right? Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a beautiful song playing and she just looks in the camera and lip syncs the song and it's you can't take your eyes off of her and it takes a certain confidence that was hard fought for me to just do something as simple as that which is just look in the camera for three and a half minutes and do do that you know yeah and you know and i also feel like you know the the you know powerful um uh you know uh, uh judaism kind of symbology of the video is another thing that like I feel like post pandemic, like uh, I was talking to, um, I don't know if you remember, um, a friend of mine, uh, Jillian Blair Ivy interviewed you for, um, the broad street review in 2000. Um, and mm. she, her and I were kind of talking about like just the, the, the imagery of the video and just how, like, like how visually compelling it is and all, but like, you know, as, as yourself, as you've kind of said that you're, you know, you, you've kind of not really embraced your Judaism, um, throughout your career, but like, this was like a very defining moment of, of kind of like, I'm here, you know what I mean? Like, and, and, and all of me is here and not, you know, I'm not kind of masking any of it. So like, I, like, did this come like that idea or, you know, kind of um, embrace of of your heritage come from the pandemic? Like, did was there kind of a revival in there? Yeah, partly because, again, like I said, when I was for Low Cut Connie, the first bunch of years, um, I never talked that much on stage for the first group of years. I was more in a group like 
Um, I wasn't the only singer in the group. Um, we kind of platooned for the first few years. I grew in terms of my presence over those years, but we all have insecurities that we carry and very confident people, uh, performers, whether it be Elvis or Madonna or Prince, iconic, confident people have major insecurities. It's a motivator. You know, if you, if you truly, truly, if you had no insecurities, you might not be driven in the same way, have the same recurring drive, you know, to continue to make things um, and get out there on camera or on stage. Um, there's a cocktail of self-belief and self-doubt that creates an artist in a lot of ways, you know. And so during the Tough Cookies pandemic years, I couldn't hide my Jewiness. It was just full frontal. All this uh, extremely Jewish humor, Yiddish language, and sensibility. And me talking about Jewish holidays. Um, me talking from a, my cultural perspective on certain political issues and cultural issues and putting my neck out in a much more uh, overt way, I became well more better known to people as I am rather than what I was projecting to be. And, and it gave me a lot of pleasure. And it, it was great to be accepted by people. And some people maybe turned off the channel and said, this is too schlocky or this guy is too whatever. Uh, like there's a channel for, for you. You can always change the channel, but people really loved when I would lean into my Jewishness, you know? And um, so coming out of the pandemic, I just pledged to myself that I would keep that feeling that self-acceptance, you know? Yeah. Because unfortunately, it's not particularly cool at this juncture to be Jewish in terms of um, in the entertainment field, um, you know, in terms of looks, a Jewish look is not part of this, the, the beauty um, standards that we have, typically. And um, there's anti-Semitism rising in America daily from all different angles. Um, in the 70s, it was extremely cool to be Jewish. So many Jewish Hollywood stars, music stars. I mean, you got Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, Leonard Cohen, Barbara Streisand, Barry Manilow. I mean, these are very Jewy people. Dustin Hoffman and and Elliot Gould and all these people, right? These days, and they were cool too. Yeah, you know, um, these days, not so much. We've actually, you know, we go through trends and beauty standards and cultural standards, and and being Jewy is not particularly cool at the moment. So I've seen a lot of Jewish artists entertainers and people kind of like 
whitewash it a bit Mm -hmm. or project something, you know? And so that's part of it too. I'm just being honest and being who I am, which takes, has taken some years, you know? Yeah. Um, did, did it, did any of it, um, kind of, um, reinvigorate any spirituality for you or? (laughs) I mean, that's part of my point is I'm not, I, I don't want to disappoint people, but I'm not a particularly spiritual person. I'm I'm right. an I'm an atheist Jew, and I want I want people to know that I'm not rubbing it in people's face. But I there are a lot of people out there um, who are very atheistic, and they're kind of afraid to say it in America too because. That's part of our culture. Yeah. You know, is faith. And it, and, um, I have a very, very deep cultural bond with Judaism, but not a theological or religious bond. And that I want to show people is a balance you can strike that I have, you know, um, it's your ethnicity and your culture as well as a religion. And, even though I don't go to a synagogue and pray and I don't have the spiritual side and it doesn't particularly appeal to me because I get all that from music and art. Um, the culture is fantastic. It's so great. The food is great. The humor is the best thing in the attitude. It's just fucking great. Why would I reject it? You know? Yeah. No, I think that's a beautiful thing, and I think it, I think it's very true. I think it's one of the things that um, um, uh, uh, people tend to kind of overlook is that, like, like, like you said, like culturally, like you don't have to, you know, have the the full on faith to be able. You, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know what I mean? If you kind of reject one, you don't have to reject it. You know, completely. You know, absolutely, and. Um... That's something that people who aren't Jewish don't totally understand because Judaism is one unique thing in that it is your ethnicity and uh, and it is a religion too. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just trying to expose people in some way to the this idea, you know? Yeah. Um, but man, we really... <laughs> I got an email from my childhood rabbi and we've been picked up by... Oh my God! So many Jewish newspapers and magazines—it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's well, it, kinda... it, it it puts a it puts a positive face, and and it puts like you know, like like it's like like you said, it makes it cool. Like you made something cool, you know what I mean? Like like as a piece of art, you know, uh, the video for King of the Jews is is a fucking beautiful piece of art, and it's fucking cool. So like it, you know, like it, it, I I can understand why there would be excitement behind it, you know, like like finally, you know, like mm-hmm. yeah, it, I'm proud of it. As you should be. Um, so the, the um, there's a, a 80 minute film uh, coming along with, <laughs> with art dealers. Is, is any of this any of the visualization stuff uh, from the uh, song releases a part of that, or is it completely nope. independent from? Oh, really? No, yeah, no, I haven't shown one millimeter of the film. And when you when it's ready, you'll see it. I promise. Um, but we're we're going to be announcing soon that the film is going to premiere at a few film festivals this fall 
the first being Richmond International Film Festival in Richmond, Virginia, September 29th, and then a couple other cities as well throughout the fall. And then we're going to be doing a public ticketed screening in December. And then next year, hopefully everybody sees it. It's awesome. Um, it's called Art Dealers. It's a companion to the album. And you just, you got to see it. I can't it's, wait. It's, it's pretty cool, man. <laughs> That's awesome. It's exciting, man. Like it's like uh you know when I heard when I heard that that was kind of coming out, you know, along with the album or alongside the album or whatnot. Um it just made me that much more excited for this project because um you know, putting that much effort and creativity into something, you know, especially coming from someone as talented as yourself, um is just I'm I'm sure going to breed something beautiful. <laughs> I never made a film before. I got to shout out my my director partner, Roy Power. He and I directed this film together and it took a couple years and I couldn't be prouder of it. It is really something special. It's funny and it captures the low cut Connie ethos really well. Awesome. Can't wait. Well, at this time, you want to go through my little uh, questionnaire that I end every uh, every interview with. It's called The Jauntlet, and it's made up of two sections that start with the one-hit wonders. And the first one, I don't think is fair, but um, Billy Joel or Elton John, who do you prefer? Oh, God. Uh, that's, that's awful. That's an <laughs> awful question. Um, Elton John vocals, Billy Joel piano. Okay, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, how does it feel when someone as legendary as Elton John says they're a fan of your stuff? Does that does that breed any of that confidence that you weren't feeling as a vocalist? <laughs> Elton and I, Elton, I felt like I like I felt like I knew him when I met him. You know, uh, just I grew up with his music, and he's similar. He and I are very similar in that he was kind of a insecure, goofy, gawky, shy kid who reinvented himself through through his music and his shows so and he didn't take himself seriously as a singer until late in his career even though he was one of the best singers of his generation so it felt very familiar to me yeah when we became buddies that's awesome that's so awesome uh the next one in this uh debbie harry or joan jett Oh man, they're both so talented, but I got to go with Debbie Harry. I'm from New Jersey. She's my Jersey girl. She's the coolest ever. Still. <laughs> I mean, still. Um, she's just one of the coolest rock and roll icons to ever grace the planet. She, her, her, um, she's the most photogenic person that's ever walked the planet. Truly. <laughs> I I 100% agree with that. She, you ask me what rock and roll looks like. Just look at Debbie Harry. Facts. Facts. Uh, next one, a uh, big one. Aretha Franklin or Tina Turner? Man, oh man. I mean, I would say, I mean, Tina is one of my greatest live entertainers. So on stage, Tina in the studio, Aretha. That's how I'll do it. Good answer. Good answer. Uh, Nirvana or Pearl Jam? That one's easy. Nirvana was absolute. I loved both bands. Uh, when I was 11, they both came out. But Nirvana, in terms of the songwriting, um, is the one 
band of that era that the songwriting has truly stuck with me. You know, you go in and out of phases with certain periods of music and decades and trends. But his songwriting really has always resonated with me. I dig it. I dig it. Uh, Janis Joplin or Stevie Nicks? Stevie Nicks, no question. Both great talents, but um, I'm not afraid to tell people. People that watch Tough Cookies know that I absolutely love Fleetwood Mac. We covered a lot of Fleetwood Mac. Yes. <laughs> and um, I just love all the mythology of the band. And I love a musical. I love what conflict breeds in music. And that's a band with all these different personalities and flavors and things that maybe should not be together and shouldn't go together. And it, it made some incredible songs. Yeah, I, uh, there's a uh, article that someone wrote for Rolling Stone, and I forget who it was, and now I'm like going to kick myself because she's a brilliant writer. Um, but she wrote an article about um, Silver Springs um, that yeah. kind of um, leads up to, you know, the performance in, what was it, like 97 or whatnot um, in the reunion. And um, it like, I, I swear, like just that piece alone is like it all encompassing how perfect Fleetwood Mac was. Like, it's just, if, if anyone were to ask, like, can you explain to me Fleetwood Mac? I'd be like, read this article about one song and you'll huh. get all of it right there. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, big cliche one, Beatles or the Stones? Fuck, man. Gotta be, for me, people are not going to be surprised that I'm going to choose the Stones. If, if, you're, if you're making me choose, I mean, I... I am a Stones fanatic. I love the Beatles, but I'm a Stones fanatic. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I I could pick the Beatles up and put them down and not listen to them for a year. But I I don't go more than a couple weeks without listening to a Stones album. Absolutely. You got a, a favorite Stones album? Exile, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just I mean, like it's it's, it's so... the one I go back to the most and I've learned the most from. Yeah, sure. and there's no skippers. Like it is, it is, it is brilliant. It's an A plus. Absolutely. Uh, the last one of the one hit wonders: Bohemian Rhapsody or Stairway to Heaven? Damn. I'm gonna go. I'm going to go with um, Stairway. Believe it or not. Um, Interesting. You know. Queen Freddie is is one of the greatest singers of all time and one of the greatest front people of all time. But from a musical perspective, I just think Led Zeppelin is 10 times more going on than Queen from a musical standpoint. OK, respect. I, I, I take it. I can take it. Uh, the the second half of this is the top 10 countdown. Now, all of these I use, John, um, to be whatever you want it to be. Obviously, you, you you're from the area. You know, you know what we got going on. Uh, it doesn't have to be music it can be anything you want. But number one, what was your first John? What was the first thing you were obsessed with when you were a kid? Chipmunks. Yeah. Alvin and the Chipmunks. The uh, the animated or musically? I saw that. Well, first of all, the show, but I saw them live at the spectrum when i was three years old and that was <laughs> insane that's awesome that is incredible uh number two what's your current john what are you into right now damn um i am really into um salsa music from the 70s fania records um hector laveau is is my 
current obsession. He was uh, the king of salsa in Spanish Harlem in the 70s. And if you haven't heard the music of Hector Laveau, check him out. All right. I will as soon as this is over. That's uh, that's awesome. I love a good tip on something I've never heard of. So I will definitely check into that. Uh, number three, you may have just answered it. What was your first concert? What was the first live show you saw? Chipmunks. Chipmunks. That's awesome. That's so cool. Have you ever heard, um, there's an album, I, I think I have a vinyl rip of it somewhere on an old iPod, um, probably stashed uh, away because I never throw away old tech, but um, the um, Chipmunks Sing the Beatles, it's a phenomenal album. Yeah, man. They, The Chipmunks, they knew what they were doing, man. They were good bands. <laughs> they were hip. They were hip. Uh, number four, what was your last concert? What was the last live show you saw? Oh, my God. Well... Uh, this Friday, I'm going to see Bruce. Oh, uh, nice. What was the last concert I saw that I wasn't in? Um, I mean, it'll it counts if it were like uh, you were playing a festival or something like that. But yeah, last one you saw as a spectator. So many. Uh, what was the most recent? Um, my friend came to Philly. William Elliott Whitmore played at Johnny Brenda's. He's a really cool uh, kind of Americana guy from Iowa, and he put on a great show, William Elliott Whitmore. Awesome. I love it. Uh, number five, what was your favorite concert? What was the best live show you ever saw? One concert? Yeah. You're killing me. <laughs> um, if I had to pick one, I'm going to go with Iggy Pop when he re- went the first Stooges reunion show, 2000. Four or three. Um, Randall's Island in New York. Um, Iggy Pop. Just his stage IQ is off the charts. What he does live and what he's able to, how he's able to command an audience live is unparalleled. It's uh it's funny that you mentioned that because like um I can I can see kind of that influence of Iggy in some of the way that you stalk the stage actually. <laughs> I've never it was life changing and I've been to a lot of great concerts and a lot of great performances but he is really something special. He gives 157% completely and he just wants to get you off every single person in the audience you know and he he does the job it's like there's there's a real different there's a subtle thing with performers what that i can look at them and say and 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 sort of figure out what motivates them in a way they may not know but my favorite kind of performer and the performer that I aspire to be are the most generous performers, the ones who are there for you. They're not there for them. And there are certain artists, Iggy being one of them, Tina Turner was one of them, James Brown was one, Prince was one, Bruce Springsteen is one, who are able to synthesize all their tools, use every talent that they have to give you the experience that they think you deserve. 
which is a subtle, subtle difference from what so many performers do, many skilled and talented performers, which there's some element of wanting to be there to be admired. Mm -hmm. There's an ego um, exercise at play. That can be very entertaining too. But some of the people I just named that I hold in the highest esteem, you know, um, are there 100% for you. They are there to entertain you and give you an experience. And what they get out of it, it doesn't even come into play in their performance. And Iggy was the first thing I saw with my eyes live that showed me that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, no, and and you know, I like I I think I think you're spot on with that and I think one of the other traits that all of them share and you share as well is that um you you too are enjoying yourself when when that connection is made. When when you can see that you've brought that and you've you've given the experience to the audience, like you can see the joy in your face. Like you can you can tell when it's working, you know. Yeah. And if you look at Iggy now, he can barely walk, but he still has that spirit, you know, he'll yep. still, his tools have, his toolbox has shrunken with age, but he's still going to give you everything that he has, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, number six, who have you never seen live uh, that you wish you would have? They can be living or dead. Easiest one to answer, Prince. is. Yeah. Prince is my ultimate musical idol, and I never got to see him live. I've um, watched every clip and studied and read the books and have all the records, and I never got to see it in person. Uh, putting uh, controversy together or, or getting you know the clearance to do that, did you ever get to have any conversation with him, or, or was that— um, controversy, was that? controversy was after he passed. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we— no, I, I never met him or anything. I, I now I know a bunch of people in Prince World now. Yeah. Um, and just got an amazing. It had just had an amazing experience at Paisley Park recently. Um, from s- some of the low cut Connie fans over there that run it, but I never met him. I never interacted with him. And I have learned more from him than any other musician. Yeah. I, uh, when I was a kid, it it would have been my, uh, second concert. I think I ever would have been to my parents bought tickets for the purple rain tour and had one for me, but then found out what the live show was about. So, you know, it was like, and then, uh, uh, sold, sold the ticket that they bought for me for someone else. And I never got to see him. So like, that was, that was my, that's one of my big misses as well is like, I had the ticket. I mean, I was a seven year old or something like that, but yeah, <laughs> it's a bummer. Uh, number seven, what's an unappreciated John? What's something you wish had more attention to it? Mm, an underappreciated John. It's funny. I'm I'm obviously only thinking about music so much of the time. And list of underappreciated musicians is just unfathomably long for me to choose one. Well, I as I sit here, I, I'm 
I'm doing this interview with you right in front of my vinyl collection. And I have an entire section of just New Orleans music. And then I have a whole section that's just Memphis music. Right? Um, and so many of the people in these parts of my collection are underappreciated. I think I think I know who I'm going to choose. I had the good fortune of interviewing Don Bryant. You may not have heard of Don Bryant. That's the point. Don wrote the song, I Can't Stand the Rain. I can't stand the rain against my window. Uh, he wrote that song. His wife, Ann Peebles, recorded the song. Recently, over the last 10 years, he's made some records. Now he's in his 80s. And he's one of the great soul music performers out there now. And he's doing well overseas. But people do not know who he is in the U.S. He doesn't get played on any radio station. He barely can tour in the U.S., and I think he's one of the soul greats, Don Bryant from Memphis. Got to check it out. Um, you mentioned New Orleans there, and uh, thanks, thanks for reminding me because it totally slipped my mind. You got to perform at Prez Hall like a week after I was there. And when I found out, I was so mad. Like, I was like, oh, my God, we missed it by a week. But uh, what was that experience like? Because that's just uh, that's hallowed ground right there. It was pretty cool, although I broke their piano. I <laughs> I was the last performer on the last day of Jazz Fest. And I broke their piano. Oh, my God. I just, it's a really old historic piano, and I just played it a little too vigorously, and I broke a few keys. I hope they'll forgive me. No, it's an amazing place and an amazing experience, and I really hope I get to go back there. Um, Jaffe and all those guys who keep that band going are just, it's just amazing. And I was very touched that they asked me to do it. Yeah. It's awesome, man. It's so awesome. Uh, number eight, what's uh, your favorite album? I know it's a shit question, but <laughs> what's your favorite album? Of all time, like one album of all time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. You're killing you kill it. Um, ooh. Well, I guess, um, huh. I can't give you like a top five. I'll take it. I should have prepared. Um, I'm going to go with the Motown box. So there's a Motown singles collection. Purple Rain. Exile on Main Street. Um, I'm going to go with Lady Soul by Aretha Franklin. And I'm going to go with, um, a wild card just cause I was listening to it the other day and I really love it is a country album called Viva Terlinga by Jerry Jeff Walker. That's probably okay. my favorite country record. Um, those are all albums that I've been listening to for decades and I just keep going back to. Awesome. I love it. Uh, number nine, name an artist whose output you'll consume anything they put out. Oh, anything. It, it's it's only a few. 
actually. I mean, there's certain artists that I'll get into a phase and for a week, that's all I'm, you know. Um, But I would say James Brown yeah. would be the first answer because there's nothing. I think he might be the only artist where there's almost nothing that he put out that I don't like. That I don't find compelling in some way. Every artist, Prince, David Bowie, Rolling Stones, Aretha Franklin, you name it, they've got something that I don't care for. No, it's in the minority. I like a lot, you know? Yeah. James Brown from the Famous Flames all the way through i saw him in 1999 in philly and he had a song uh, the columbine shooting had just happened and he had a song killing is out school is in come back tomorrow and try it again and it was goofy but it was a pretty sick song and he was saying some shit with it too yeah um he was just such a pure musical artist, a true, I don't use the word genius often. He was a musical genius, James Brown. So him. Great answer. Great answer. The 10th and final of the top 10 countdown. What is your favorite John of all time? Again, doesn't have to be music can be anything you want it to be. Oh man. Um, I love, uh, <laughs> I guess I would say just cause it's summertime and I, People that know me know I love summer and I love hot weather. So I would say watching a sunset on the beach. Fantastic. What I'm a man of simple pleasures. It really does. Like something, I'm a beach goer. I love the I love swimming in the ocean. I love everything about the beach and Sometime around the last week of August, I will be sitting on a beach watching a sunset and it will give me energy for the rest of the year. Yeah, it doesn't matter how many sunsets I've seen. It will always mesmerize, especially like like you said, like on a beach, like it is just like kind of like um, why? I, yeah, I remember the first time I saw the sunset on the Pacific Ocean. And it was just like I saw something, you know, completely brand new. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a process that the sun does literally every day. Yet because it was just, you know, into the water instead of away from the water, like completely mesmerized me. Yeah. It's awesome. So um, Art Dealers, September 8th. And then you're playing the Exponential Music Festival where I will be. I'm a, a avid uh, XPN listener and love that festival beyond belief. Um, and, and any surprises for the uh, Exponential Music Festival? Yes. Be yeah. There. Okay. I, I love it. You know, yes. last time last time you surprised me, um, you know, I, I had um, um, uh, Greg Seltzer on, on the show and uh, he was like, oh, you're not going to want to miss the Loka Connie show for the Philadelphia Music Fest this year. Uh, Adam's doing something special. He's like, I can't tell you what it is. And then we stopped the interview and then off off mic, he was like, uh, you know, he's got the he's got the Hooters are going to show up. And I was like, uh, yeah, OK, I'll see you there, you know, like uh, <laughs> immediately. So we had we also had Marshall, Marshall Allen. Allen. Yes, that was such a beautiful show, man. Like that was just and and you guys sounded so good like it was just a powerful yeah. night he's a, 
he's the man. He just turned 99 and uh, got to hang with him. And what's funny is they kept saying, put Marshall's song at the beginning of the show because he's 98 and we got to get him home. And he sat at the side of the stage and watched the rest of our show. I mean, he's just a real music guy. And um, that was a really special night. And the Hooters uh, surprise performance and it was just awesome. It was, I, I hope we get to do that again. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I mean, like the the amount you've done, not just um, for showcasing your own um, talents and stuff like that, but the amount you've done to kind of shine some light on, you know, some people who deserve their flowers and stuff like that um, has been absolutely beautiful. And, uh, you know, I'd be uh, remiss to go through this interview without uh, mentioning the low cut strut um, with, 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 you know, with Jerry. And um, what, a, what a beautiful tribute um, to be able to have something like that, to be able to share Oh, and, thank uh, you. And what well, obviously, obviously your listeners are Philadelphia people. So they'll know who Jerry was. And um, he was a dear, dear, dear friend and mentor and supporter of me and Low Cut Connie. And um, we made that song many, a bunch of years ago, but forgot like we forgot that it wasn't out it was only on a vinyl single so the minute that i found out that he was sick we started talking about putting it out and anyway he was such a cheerleader and a confidence builder and a just an exciting person to be around and when i would get discouraged he literally would call me and leave voice messages saying, my man, don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged. You're a star. You're a star. You're a star. You know, over and over for years, he would just, and, and anytime any, something good would happen in Philadelphia, Philadelphia inquirer, something, he'd see me on the news and he'd call me and take me to lunch and tell me how proud he was. He was just like my musical godfather in Philly. He really was. It's beautiful, and it's a it's a tragic loss. And um, I I will also I I gotta I gotta say it because uh, I I know the listeners are waiting for me to do it. Um, was also in an episode of the Monkeys, so there you go. <laughs> yes, he was. He was also in an episode of SpongeBob. Was he really? Yep, he played a tuna fish that was a DJ. Oh, that's incredible! <laughs> Absolutely incredible. Yeah, I love it, Adam. Thank you so much for doing this. Like I said, uh, you, you, it was it was uh, tough cookies that kind of helped uh, create yo. That's my John. So to be able to finally get to talk to you and um, and and not just talk to my screen as you are you know performing, but uh, but to actually have a conversation, man, um, it means a whole heck of a lot to me. And thank you not just for doing the show, but for creating all of the beautiful stuff that you've created. Um, it means a lot. Oh man, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Please come say hi the next time you're at one of our things, and I'm sure I'll see you around town. I'll see you in Ambler. Hell yeah. That was so incredible. My thanks again to Adam for joining me on the show today. Low Cut Connie's new album, Art Dealers, is out this Friday, September 8th on Contender Records and will be available on all streaming services and available on both vinyl and CD. 
You can see Low Cut Connie perform at the Exponential Music Festival presented by Subaru Sunday, September 24th at Wiggins Park on the Camden Waterfront. And the Art Dealers film will be screening at the Heartstrings Music Festival in Richmond, Virginia on September 29th. Links to all of those are, as always, in the show notes. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to the Yo! That's My John podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And guys, it is not too late to get yourself a super awesome John Scout merit badge for citizenship of the world just by rating and reviewing us. Don't forget to visit www.yothatsmyjohn.com for articles, merchandise, and links to all of the previous episodes of this podcast. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to get all of the updates delivered straight into your inbox. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash yo that's my John for updates and live streams. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at yo that's my John and search yo that's my John on YouTube to find the yo that's my John YouTube channel. Like and subscribe the heck out of that ish. We want to hear from you. Reach out, reach out and touch some John. Heading out to San Francisco. For the Labor Day weekend show I got my hush puppies on I guess I never was meant for glitter rock and roll Oh man, rest in peace to the legend Jimmy Buffett Yeah, I know we're all sad But I like to think he told us a very long time ago That come Monday, it'll be alright Blue skies until next time, everybody. Hey, yo, displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure. Your taste in music doesn't have to be. Yo, That's My John is a Lonely Monk production written and produced by yours truly, Nate Runkle. Theme song by Phil Tyler Music featuring Nate 3.0. Special thanks to Fox Run Brands, DX Ferris, Andrew Scott, Natalie Runkle, and the incredibly brilliant and wickedly stunning Katie Daubney. If you or anyone you know has any ideas they would like to share or any guests they would like to hear on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at yo, that's my John at gmail.com. Or you can leave an audio message for us and possibly hear yourself on a future episode by visiting anchor.fm slash ytmj slash message. Until next time, be sure to displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure and shout to the world, yo, that's my John. <laughs>